0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner.
1: And the Oscar
0: goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's
1: practicing their speech on the telly, you never know... Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I am here in person with Richard Lawson. What a thrill!
2: I know we're in studio, like real
3: professionals.
1: Really, it's like we're on, and just like that, and we're both Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and joining us, as always, of David Canfield. Hello, and Rebecca Ford. We have vowed next time there will be four of us sitting at this table together. Um, But in the meantime, we are connected to talk about a lot of things. The Tony Awards aired on Sunday. Emmy voting is right around the corner. We've got good Emmy stuff to talk about, including our own coverage of some of the actors in the race. Um, We want to answer some of your questions about the Golden Globes as best we can because there's some confusing news on that front this week. Uh, And we have another pride flashback about my beautiful laundrette, which I know we're all very excited to talk about. So let's start with the Tonys because, um, Richard, you led the conversation predicting all the winners, which I'm pretty sure you guys did really well, predicting I the think winners, we honestly. Did
2: pr- well, I think that Jackson McHenry and Chris <laughs> did really well. Esther and I were sort of here and there. But, um, yeah, it was a fun uh, conversation to sort of synthesize all of this season together and then to see— we recorded that before the sort of we had mentioned the WGA strike impending, but then then the strike really did happen, and everyone's like, "Okay, is there even going to be a broadcast?" And then they got some sort of special dispensation from the WGA to do it without writers. And I thought the results, broadcast wise, were really good. Yep, I think okay. opening the Tonys with a wordless dance routine—great, fun, different you know, and then DeBose used her sort of loopy host energy to good effect. And then when the presenters came out, there was no corny banter. They just said, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, here are the nominees, here's the winner, speech, then a musical performance. It was great.
1: I mean, the thing that Tonys have going for them is those musical performances don't have to be scripted. Like they can right. just be imported directly from the Broadway stage. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to have any writers to craft spectacle. It's built in. That's what's great about the Tonys in the first place.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, they were saying this on Who Weekly, too, on Tuesday, but um, the Tonys has in, some, in most ways what the Grammys has as an advantage, which mm-hmm. is like you can just do a lot of performances that don't have to rely on any sort of room writing jokes for presenters or whatever. And I think that, like, in so, you know, the, obviously this Tony's existed under constraints, but I think that maybe they found their path to, like, what that broadcast should be. Have four extra performances if you can. I also love they did an Into the Woods. That closed on Broadway a, or a while ago, I think. or, mm-hmm. or um, But it, now it's on tour, and so they were advertising the tour. And, like, I just think that, like, as a showcase for what's on offer, either in New York or out on the road, that's a great use for the Tonys, peppered with awards. And, yes, it's sad that, like, a lot of production awards and special awards for, you know, John Kander, like, weren't on the main broadcast. They were on Pluto TV, before, which CBS owns ahead of time. But for the most part, I don't know. I don't know if anyone, anyone else here watched it, but, like, I mean, I know you did, Katie, but I thought it was really well done. And I was like, this is what it should be
1: Yeah, David, forward. you watched it as well, right?
2: Yes, I did. Um, and I felt the exact same way. Uh,
4: from the mo- from the moment they started, because you know you're you're wondering how they're going to handle the elephant in the room, and they thought they did a really elegant and smart job with that. And then you had a lot of great performances <laughs> and good winners, and you lost a lot of the stuff. and the, I think you trimmed had to trim the fat really of the parts of award shows that haven't been as effective lately.
1: I mean, I'm a fan of banter and bits at award shows. Sure. Like, I don't want to lose them entirely, but I do think the presenter thing, especially, was where you realized, oh, why have we, why have we been doing like dumb setup jokes? I mean, why are there two yeah. people on stage? Valid question. I loved hearing them pronounce their own names. Very helpful for those of us who interview people. <laughs> um, and they used backstage cameras to fill some of the gaps in such a fascinating way. With like, you have you have the cast of Sweeney Todd like applauding the cast of shocked as they exit the stage or whatever. There was there was like an energy. I mean, it's a the theater kid energy, right? Like maybe other award shows can't have it.
2: I made a joke on Twitter, a very maybe esoteric joke where I was like the Tonys this year and it was a screenshot from the old film King of Hearts about <laughs> insane asylum people who take over a French town during the war. Um, and it just felt like, oh, the theater kids are fully in control because there's no like powers that be from TV telling them because they can't really tell them what to do or what to say. <laughs> But I thought it was fun, and I think that I'm glad you mentioned the backstage thing because it was a great way to say, okay, this is the group performing next because they're kind of waiting in the wings as the other group gets off stage. But it also, yeah, contributed to that energy of excitement and anticipation, um, and it was really theater dorky, and you know, even I can roll my eyes at that sometimes, <laughs> but – it was also infectious and um, loose, and it felt um, like I don't know another joke I made on Twitter. <laughs> it felt like my like senior year theater department banquet where people got awards and everyone had a party, and you know um, that's maybe what the Tonys should try to be, rather than um, something as slick and produced and telegenic as the Oscars, for you know, for example.
3: Yeah, but this doesn't sound like there's a lot that the TV Academy, who may be watching with nerves as uh, September approaches. It doesn't sound like this is something the Emmys could do, you know, if they're in the same situation.
2: I mean, they could perform scenes from shows, which I would... (laughs)
3: Love it. Remember, they used to, the
2: straight plays we would have scenes performed at the Tonys. I mean, years, they haven't done that in a long time. But, like... No, you're right, Rebecca. Like, this is unfortunately isolated to stuff that has musical performance capabilities. The Oscars does.
1: Although, you know what I thought that the Emmys could steal in the Oscars, too, is they had, before they introduced, I think, the major play and musical nominees, they had, like, a 30-second documentary where they interviewed the director and the cast and, like, showed them in the rehearsal room and be like, here's what our play is. And I think, I mean, there's plenty of Oscar movies that could use that of someone just being like, here's what this movie's about. Not just clips from it, but, like, let the people talk about it. And I don't know where that lands in WGA rules, but I love the idea of adopting that in general for especially the Oscars, but also the Emmys of people who are nominating things that the broader audience might not be familiar with.
4: It was kind of similar to what they did inside the room, Rebecca, at the Oscars this year where between the commercial breaks they would they would have that. They would kind of set up the category by doing a little reel with interviews of the nominees. Um, so they've had the idea they just haven't put it on the actual show. Remember they yeah, had, you had, really I think you had, to, that. Yeah, you had to. Yeah, you had to scan like a QR code if
2: you were at home. <laughs>
1: I miss miss that unfortunately
2: and you have time to do that at the Emmys or the Oscars if you only allow let's say two presenter groups to have any banter (laughs) you know like get your funniest people Mm -hmm. or your kookiest person whatever let them kind of riff before they announce the nominees but everyone else hi I'm Benjamin Brett. here are the nominees blah 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 and then you build in time for stuff like a package that's pre-taped or whatever
1: yeah I think that's a great idea Um, We should talk about the winners. Um, David, in your piece that ran a little while ago about uh, the push to Degender Awards, you talked, you mentioned the fact that there were two non-binary stars nominated for Tony's this year, and they both won. And Mm -hmm. it was really an amazing sight, especially given the conversation we've had about this. People keep emailing us about it. We're very grateful to hear it. Um, How did you feel watching those victories, David?
4: You know, it's, it's a historic moment. It's an undeniably exciting moment when you see those two actors particularly get to take the stage and and own their moment. Um, but it remains a complicated issue. And those actors have spoken about operating within an imperfect system and making their own choice. Just We should as, name uh, them.
1: It's um, Jay Harrison-Gee and Alex, Alex Newell, right?
4: Yes. Jay Harrison-Gee won lead for Some Like It Hot, Alex Newell supporting for Shucked, both in uh, musicals. Um, but another... You know, musical breakout, Justin David Sullivan of the musical and Juliet chose not to submit. Um, They are also non binary. So it just depends. Um, But I think that this is, if nothing else, an indication of the talent, the non binary talent that is on Broadway, on screen right now, uh, and that are, you know, contending rightly for awards and really seriously competitive. And that's probably why those voices are. Going to need to be listened to a little bit more in the next few years because they're going to only increase in in um, prominence at uh, shows like these.
1: Yeah, yeah, you can expect the Tonys to be on the vanguard of some things like that. But you can imagine people who produce the Oscars and the Emmys watching this and being like, "Oh, this ha- this system can't stand." There's like there's a false binary here that we have to address.
4: It's worth noting that of the major award shows, the the show that is rumored slash expected to actually institute a change in the next few years is the Tony Awards. And that is something I am also confident that the TV and film academies are aware of, because it's not going to be an issue isolated to the Tonys, uh, as we have discussed at length, and as our our readers have uh, engaged with us in very, uh, very thoroughly.
1: Okay, so to jump to a different award show, and I just need to jump in straight and ask Rebecca to explain to me what's going on with the Golden Globes because I read their press release about Dick Clark... Actually, no, I'm not even going to try to... Rebecca, explain to me what's going on with the Golden Globes. I can't even summarize it to sense. Katie, walk me
3: through it, please. (laughs) Um, Well, sure. So we knew this was coming. This was not a surprise that this had been announced that this was probably going to happen. The Golden Globes and all of its assets, which include... Uh, the HFP and all that were acquired by Dick Clark Productions and Eldridge, which is a, a another company to run it. And basically, what they're doing is they're they're splitting it into two entities: one that is a nonprofit that will really focus on the HFPA or Golden Globes uh, charitable activities and and things like that, and then also a for-profit organization which will um, house the globes and the awards and all of that as a company so it's it's a lot of like legal stuff that I think makes it sound very dramatic but doesn't really affect like who is voting on these awards will there be a show like those things are staying the same um, the globes will be happening the basically I checked in with them and made sure that um, it's accurate but Everyone who is a member of the HFPA, like that, that label is not going to exist anymore, but those members will remain voters. So and they will they just be members of the Golden Globes? Is that what we'll call them? Yeah, they'll be Golden Globe voters, But okay. um, and they will, quote— transition Golden Globe sa- yes. Voters. yes, they will, quote, transition into the new for-profit entity as employees. So that's how they're salaried, is as employees of this new organization. So they're still paid. Um, I believe the the HFPA has such a stain on it now that keeping that label makes no sense for anyone. Um, so it's a smart move for them to get rid of that. But those zany voters that we all <laughs> know and see still exist and will still be voting. They have expanded the voter pool. So it's up to 310 voters now when it, you know, before all the controversy was at like 70 something. So there's a much more diverse group of voters, but um, it's not like the people who were in the HFPA won't be voting anymore. So it's it's a lot of changing of names and titles and things like that, um, but it still exists <laughs> is I, the short answer.
2: Is it true that the newer voters, the people, the journalists and whatever who were brought in re- in very recent years you know, amidst all the Globe's controversy, they will not be paid like employees?
3: They're not yet. Yeah, The more you read into it, the more you sort of realize that, yes, they have been recruited as voters, but they will not be employees of this new organization, which means they will not be salaried. Um, I think there's also the goal of maybe this cleans up a lot of the – because one of the worst things was these HFPA people would be – voters would have been flown to Paris or, you know, to be on the set of Emily in Paris or, you know, given sort of these insane gifts um, to, you know, get their attention for voting. So – I think there's some idea that that will also go away. but Although there's not the same kind of strict rules around the Academy voters that we know of. Yes, right, right. So there's still a lot of questions. I'm sure people are going to be watching this closely. you know. So I mean, we know there's a group of um, especially personal publicists that still feel there's a lot of problems with the way the Globes are. Uh, the voters now see now what are we going to call them the voters of the globes Um, (laughs) globes
1: voters yeah no one's going to think the
3: hollywood foreign press anymore it's kind of the end of an era they're going to say thank you to the globes voters (laughs) (laughs) doesn't sound as good so there's going to be a lot of eyes on them is what i would say but um yeah well i think we just have to kind of wait and see how the rest of this plays out
4: it was um Eye-popping to me when the release came through that the the new media contact for how to respond, or who to talk to about the Golden Globes now that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association doesn't exist anymore, was uh, someone from Penske Media. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, which is, you know, now involved in Dick Clark Productions, <laughs> which now has used to be, you know part of the broadcast of the Globes and now is part of the actual organization of the Globes. You should just note
1: who else, what else Penske Media owns for those who don't know. Yes.
4: And Penske uh, has sort of taken ownership of the vast majority of entertainment trades like Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Deadline, IndieWire, and has kind of steadily dipped his toe into the entertainment waters, award show waters. And so this feels like another significant step in that direction. Um, That was the thing that raised my eyebrow, because to Rebecca's earlier point, the Globes are really not necessarily changing anything materially as far as viewers are concerned or the awards are concerned, you know, the way they're handed out. But this is a different kind of structure that has some interesting parties now involved.
1: Yeah, I think that I really adds to the inside baseball nature of this. And it's hard to know what will happen or how much anyone watching the Globes will notice. But um, David and Rebecca, when you guys meet with uh, awards reps, I'll be very interested to hear what those conversations are like.
3: Yeah, the, the access between an awards show and the trades that it is also owned by the same company feels a little complicated and messy. So I guess we're just going to see how that all goes. Yeah.
2: We this podcast does technically own the blockbuster awards, mm-hmm. but obviously that's pretty moot these We've days. We've been
3: kind of derelict in our yeah. duties of holding yeah. our own awards show. would <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> be better. We definitely it. get the first spot on the carpet though, and all the acts. Let's,
1: let's acquire the AARP Movies for Ups awards. I feel like that's a good target. Do oh. okay, next
2: hostile takeover. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone.
2: Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries.
0: Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly and Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Wondry's new podcast, Blame It On The Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
1: So let's move back more to the present and the Emmys. Voting starts on Thursday the 15th, probably today, as you listen to this. Um, And Rebecca, this week you're doing a little bit of a deeper dive into the comedy series. We talked about drama last week, which is thoroughly dominated by succession. It seems like there are some pretty strong contenders in there, but maybe not one show lording over the entire category as a whole. Or Rebecca, is this just Abbott Elementary's year to win everything?
3: My pitch is that comedy is where the drama is because mm. <laughs> the drama races are boring because of succession. So um I I think there's maybe be three top contenders, but a lot of other shows that I think will be sort of trying to get those remaining spots. Um, you know, Ted Lasso comes in having won the past two years. So the question was can it three peat? But, you know, I think we've all noticed there's been sort of a more tepid reaction to this third season. This may be last season, uh, whatever we're calling it now. But to me, that feels unlikely that it would um, win three years in a row. Last time that happened was Veep. Veep was a very, very much on a a much higher high um, Mm -hmm. that time around. And that was not for Veep's final season. It didn't win that year. So then we're looking at, yes, Abbott Elementary and the Bear, I think, are the ones that really feel like they have a lot of momentum. Abbott uh, was nominated for its first season, but didn't win Ted Lasso won, and, but did win two other Emmys, won um, for writing for Quinta Brunson and Cheryl Lee Ralph won. So it's coming in, I think, with a lot of momentum. It won a bunch of the awards, um, you know, the SAG ensemble. It won the Globe. It won the Critics' Choice. Um so it's coming in with a ton of momentum it has this very charismatic cast. I think we can see a lot of nominations um coming for individual actors within it um, so then the question is the bear you know it premiered a year ago. that's the season that's eligible, but then the second season will be debuting right as voters are voting. So that we think has always been an advantage for shows when they can get that timing, um, because it is at the front of people's minds. So at least for nominations, I feel like it's going to do really well. And then I think we've got a pretty tight race. What other shows do you guys feel like we should keep an eye on? Well, p-
1: poking around the list of potentials, I don't know about this series-wise, but Wednesday feels like an interesting X factor. Um, you know, you look at the comedy lead actress, Gwenta Brunson, you'd think would be really strong, and she, but she and Jenna Ortega, like, might just be neck and neck. Rachel Brosnahan's still in there for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which like, so I think we think is not as strong a contender. But I think series-wise, it is down to those three, like you said, Rebecca, but the acting races feel kind of all over the place. Yeah.
4: I mean, I think that... Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Barry both ended as well. Uh, in addition to, well, maybe Ted Lasso. I guess we don't know for sure yet. It's crazy just, that
1: we still don't know. Just, <laughs> just, just that annoying.
4: Out. <laughs> um, it does feel like it's the end of Jason Sudeikis' run on Ted Lasso, and Jason Sudeikis is Ted Lasso. So, <laughs> um, like literally the character. So yeah. I don't, I don't know how we can talk about it, but it does feel like there's an ending there. In addition to Barry and Maisel, um, and both Barry and Maisel had. Really well received endings, even as you know their Emmy glory days are a bit behind them. Uh, so I, I'm interested to see if either of them can can claw back in in some way. Like Bill Hader's direction has been so undeniable with Barry, and I know Maisel this season had a really great showcase for Alex Borstein, who won for the show's first few seasons. So I think there's opportunity for those shows to. You know, have some kind of landing in the same way that, say, like John Hamm won for the last season of Mad Men, hmm. um, even though that show didn't really win anything else uh, at the end there.
1: But it was also so ridiculous that he hadn't won at that point. Like that—that that was such a drumbeat that I don't know if exists for some of these others.
4: Yes, well, because they did win things at yeah. the beginning, um, but there are areas where you could say, like, I think Bill Hader's directing is something that it would be criminal if it was never recognized. For this show, because he won
1: for writing, but not for directing.
4: I think he just won lead actor. Wow, um, he's won the DGA. I think the last three years of eligibility or two years of eligibility for the show, so he's been recognized by the industry. Um, but I'm not. I'm not sure that he. Yeah, he hasn't. He's been nominated for the Emmy in directing, but he's never won, uh, and he hasn't won for writing either.
2: That's wild. Jason Bateman won for directing Ozark, maybe. That's yeah. What you're thinking of. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Any institutional memories on my strong suit?
2: So wait, I don't really know what year it is, like calendar wise, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. is White Lotus, that, that's, that's here, right?
3: That's unlimited. That's no, unli- no, no,
2: no. No drama. drama. That's my drama. drama? Last week. Okay.
3: <laughs> it could go anywhere, really.
2: Does White Lotus being in there disrupt the, dr- the succession thing at all? Probably not, right?
3: Well, we, yeah. So
1: this is what we. You're, yeah, we, we talked about this without you last week. Oh, you did. Um, I'm sorry. No, 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 it's, fine. <laughs> it's really just Jennifer Coolidge, uh, right, uh, right? And then everything else is just Succession running away with it, which is kind of a shame for that show too. Yeah,
2: yeah. although it's not the end for them. Yeah, you know. So there's there's more opportunity, and they won a ton last time because yeah. they were limited.
1: You know what happens is you think about the SAGs, the Golden Globes, and the Emmys, and you cannot remember who won it which. No. This is
3: happening. I mean, David and Rebecca, you guys are there for some of these. Maybe it doesn't happen as badly to you. No, it cool. does because they're all in the same like looking ballroom and I can't remember which show I was at. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. Cause matter.
4: like the bear and Abbott sort of split guild season. And I had to look up that the bear actually won producers guild, um, mm-hmm. over Abbott. I didn't remember that. So it's, yeah, it's, it can be very confusing as to who's one where and what that means, uh, when it comes to actually figuring out how these races are going to look.
3: And I think I brought this up of last year when Abbott was going through the race, but it obviously I, a broadcast show has such a large hill to climb to to win um Mm -hmm. at the emmys you know modern family was the last broadcast show to win comedy series so i i I don't know if that makes it harder for abbott because i mean we did see them win so much in this past year but it would be pretty historic if they do win because they're the literally the only broadcast show we're talking about uh in the competition this season
1: I do see some people at Gold Derby throwing in John Larroquette for Night Court, which I wouldn't be opposed to, like, bring John Larroquette back to the Emmys.
4: That feels like wishful thinking to me.
1: <laughs>
3: you never, never, no. I mean, I think we should keep our eye on shrinking, like mm-hmm. Harrison Ford, maybe could be even a double nominee, because um, he's 1923 as well. And Jason Segel is, is, I feel like, such a TV staple. There's a possibility, you know, that show, I think, has a lot of fans, so... Um, And The Great, like both Nicholas Holt and Al Fanning were nominated for the last season in the acting races. So I think there may be some sort of surprises. I mean, I feel like Molly Shannon for the other two would be great to see in there. So Mm -hmm. um, I think we could see some sort of uh, acting performances that maybe the show uh, won't play as well. But the performances will get some sort of uh, attention.
2: And we think they'll be serving beef at the Emmys? (laughs) Limited, That's limited. It's (laughs) unlimited. Wait, did it? What would
3: you stay in our comedy lane, <laughs> Richard? I'm sorry,
2: okay. Never, I, I don't know what's in what. I thought these were a comedy, it's a half an hour show that's going to have a second season.
3: I believe we all believed that. We've been told it's not having a second season.
2: All right, I, I'm just going to walk out of the studio. I, don't, I can't contribute to the conversation. I think Katie's presence is throwing you off, Richard. <laughs> the
1: categories make no sense in this year's <laughs> Emmys, more than most.
4: Right. Okay. I, I would just say Rebecca mentioned the other two and. I If I have a passion pick, I really, really hope that that show can break through the comedy race. It seems fairly unlikely, just given like, the amount of final seasons, if nothing else. But it does feel like it's the funniest show on TV, and that's been pretty widely uh, considered this year. Um, and it seems to have grown its audience at least somewhat. I-, I would say that there are a few slots that are unclear in the comedy race, You also have the first season of Poker Face kind of circling there. It's a big push for Peacock. You mentioned Wednesday, Katie, which was definitely more of a commercial hit than a critical hit. That doesn't always matter with the Emmys, but they don't have the unlimited ballot anymore. So I don't think it's quite as much of a slam dunk as it would have been a year ago. But anyway, I'd love to see the other two find one of those slots. I think it, it very much deserves it.
1: Um, it feels weird to call only murders in the building a passion pick because it's had like a lot of success nominations wise, but it feels really overlooked a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's coming back, but I think in August. So it's not going to be on um, while nominations voting is happening or winner voting. Or no, it'll be on while winner voting happening. Anyway, like Selena Gomez didn't get nominated last year. It'd be really nice to see her get in there. Um, I'll be pulling for it. I thought the second season was great.
4: Yeah. I think it's the kind of show that will pop up a lot and people will be like, oh, yeah. You know, it's it's very it's pretty widely watched. It was, I think, pretty well received. So I, w- I would be surprised if it fell off dramatically. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't expect it to win anything.
2: And even if it does this year, then they're going to have the Meryl Streep season yes. exactly, <laughs> and so it'll be right back in the mix.
3: Yeah, she'll get the spotlight back yeah. on them. Speaking of falling off dramatically, I you know Atlanta also ended and is mm-hmm. eligible, yeah. but it just you don't hear anyone talking about it, or I just I'm not sure we're going to see it in the nominations, which is a shame i feel like that show started off so strong so um i don't know that'd be a surprise i think at this point if we see it it would be you know poking around gold derby i'm seeing a lot of people predicting
1: christina applegate and dead to me is another show that's finale i think got really overlooked but you know she did this great interview with us talking about her MS diagnosis and her retirement from acting and i think her getting nominated i don't know if she'd attend the awards i don't know how that would work out but that would be a kind of a a moving thing to happen. don't, I have not watched that show, but I think I'm rooting for it anyway.
2: Well, te- Katie, technically that's slotted as a variety sketch, though. So
1: <laughs> God, i got to keep up. I'm just
2: making things up now to sound smarter than you guys. You know, but. they
4: are making Documentary Now compete, I believe, is a oh, limited yeah. series this year, which is insane. You
1: think David's making that up to mess with you, Richard, but he's not.
2: <laughs> what face did Richard make? These people are drunk with power, <laughs> just slotting things left and right.
1: Okay, with Emmy voting starting this week, Rebecca, you are kicking off the long-awaited Reunited series. Uh, you moderate these conversations between actors who have worked together previously and are in the mix again this year. Uh, it's a really great lineup this year. What have your highlights been?
3: Oh, it's almost hard to pick highlights. Um, Jessica Chastain and Matt Smith both talked about their wigs on <laughs> George and Tammy and House of the Dragon, which I thought was great. Um, no, they were really wonderful together. They have a really funny... Um, Way of talking to each other, um, and I enjoyed that. Every every one of these is different. I think that's what's so fun is like you sign on to these uh, Zooms where these, and you don't know what kind of relationship these two people have. You know they've worked together before, but some of them you can tell are very good friends. And some of them haven't talked in years, and and so. And then um, for Tuesday we had Nisi Nash uh, and Alex Borstein, who really revealed to me how much the show they used to be on called Getting On, which was an HBO show changed their careers and really, like, opened up doors for them when it came to more dramatic work. So I hadn't realized that that sort of changed the course of both their careers. So that was a great one. Um, and then we have James Marsden and Lizzie Kaplan, which um, our colleague Hillary did the interview for. And I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't even read it yet, but I think According to Hillary, such a they fun... seem like they're
1: uh, genuine friends. But, you know, they're actors, like, they're good at faking it. But I don't know. I feel like when you get people together in this format, Rebecca, you, you kind of get yeah. good at seeing the dynamic—
3: yeah, you, I think you can tell. I've done so many of these, I feel like you, you know when you sign on. And then, David, you got to talk to a couple of your favorites.
4: Yeah, I spoke to Jesse Plemons and Molly Shannon. Uh, they were the stars of Chris Kelly's directorial debut, Other People, uh, which was a semi-autobiographical film. Uh, Molly Shannon won the Independent Spirit Award for it and gave one of my favorite speeches of all time when she won, uh, which we we looked back on. I, I would say that the, the the dynamic between them was one of Jesse Plummins just radiating joy at hearing Molly Shannon speak and just smiling.
1: <laughs> who can't relate.
4: <laughs> who can't relate, honestly. Um, but they, yeah, there's a, there seemed to be a real love between them that, that came through.
1: I mean, Rebecca, a lot of times you get people who have been talking about themselves and talking about their show forever. I think in Oscar season it really happens more dramatically. And I think what's so special about these interviews is you get them on these conversational tracks they just would not do with anybody else.
3: Oh yeah, like I think sometimes they forget I'm there and they just kind of (laughs) go off on their own. Our our final, our final one was Riley Keough and Juno Temple, and they did a movie, an indie movie together when they were like turning 21 and and they just start talking about the bars they went to and dropping phones and toilets and and i was like oh i don't need to be here for this like this is just uh (laughs) you know them reminiscing so yeah that that's really the fun part is the conversations feel really fresh after a long season of sort of very canned responses about their shows so um please check them out they're all uh on the site this week
1: For this week's installment of the Pride Flashback series, we're going to jump just a year ahead from last week's Kiss of the Spider-Woman to My Beautiful Laundrette, which came out in 1986. It earned one Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, um, but launched a two major Oscar careers. Honestly, it's directed by Stephen Frears. It was his third movie, originally made for television. That's how kind of unprestigy he was at this part <laughs> in his career, um, and it co-stars Daniel Day Lewis, who did not have three Oscars at this point, but he had a beautiful two-toned haircut and some great jackets and hats and um, a whole lot of energy. You know, we see these – you see movies with people – earlier in their career. And, you know, we talked about Shanghai Express, which was expressly a Marlena Dietrich star vehicle. And then we did, you know, William Hurt and Kiss the Spider Woman. He's already kind of a star at this point. Um, But seeing this movie, which is this, you know, pretty low budget British film, um, and it didn't know what it had in Daniel Day-Lewis and kind of watching over the course of the movie, uh, just literally watching A Star Be Born. I don't think I'd seen anything quite like that in a really long time. This is I'd never seen this movie before. It was an incredibly special first-time watch. Um, did anybody else see this for the first time? For this,
2: yeah, I hadn't seen it. I thought I had mm. because I was confusing it with a movie called Beautiful Thing. I realized the mm. minute it started, I was like, "Wait, this isn't the British gay movie I remember." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh right, there's a different one." Um, he's incredible in it. I mean, he's such a disco- I mean, he's not like I don't think he was. This wasn't his first role, right? But like, yeah. But like, he's such a discovery in it, and um, and like. I've I like pretty much everyone else who cares about movies. Like I've always appreciated him as an actor. I mm-hmm. think he's great, but like, sexy is not necessarily where I tended to go with him. I mean, he's obviously a good-looking man, but like in this one, it's like Jesus Christ! <laughs> like <laughs> that first kiss scene with um his. Uh, co-star Gordon. Gordon Yeah, Gordon, who's also beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, he's like the really pretty one where Dade Lewis has the kind of rakish whatever. But that first kiss scene, I was like, well, that's the hottest thing I've ever seen on film. And then two scenes later, he licks his neck secretly (laughs) in front of the (laughs) hooligans that he's friends with. And I was like, good grief. Um, I was quite taken. I mean, also, I think the movie is so fascinating. Um, It's a bit of social drama and it's about Pakistani-British relations and class and economics and it's it's such an interestingly morally shaded movie but yes at the center are just these two beautiful men just like being beautiful together and that's um you know selling point enough for me
3: yeah Rebecca this was your pick for this series I think right it was and I hadn't seen it it was one of the Daniel Day-Lewis performances I hadn't seen so I thought oh great this is a good way to do that and I wanted to see it because I I think the sort of cross cultural relationship and storyline is really interesting and and you know I had to like and, you know I was just like oh we should all watch a movie where Daniel Day Lewis licks someone's neck um, so you know <laughs> I didn't know that was in this movie and I was <laughs> now not that is prepared. what I call pride <laughs> uh, I know I was reading the, I don't know if this is true but I was reading online that like. Uh, Gordon didn't know that that was going to happen. That was like a day of uh, sort of choice that Stephen Fears and Daniel D. Lewis made. So that's, I don't know, it works really well. But uh, it's pretty funny when you think that wasn't originally in the plan. But yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I loved it too. I thought, I, you know, I mean, obviously some things, this is a movie from 1985, feel dated when you're watching it. And, and some of the sort of subplots, you're just like, what is happening? And there's a very <laughs> strange. Um, part of the score that sounds like laundry bubbles that I <laughs> but you know <laughs> it's, it's also very, very 80s. perfect sense. yes of course <laughs> um, but but yeah watching special Dan- especially Daniel Day-Lewis performance is just incredible you know to see him so early in his career
4: yeah I guess I was the only one who'd seen this before. So you
3: knew
1: about the necklace and you didn't tell us. <laughs> I did. I,
4: I I I had assumed more people had seen it. To be honest, I I thought we were all gearing up for a rewatch. <laughs> but now this is another another installment
2: of David's gay coming of age. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I had seen this as a teenager, I would not be sitting here. I'd be dead. Like I like. <laughs> I'm glad that I waited. Um.
4: Yeah. It, it was. It was one of my favorites uh, in that in that canon, and it's a, yeah, it definitely held up on a rewatch. Even set moment when he like catches an eyelash as they're entering uh, Daniel Day Lewis does as they're entering his family home, and there's it's just sexy. Everything about it is sexy and um, beautifully done. It's nice to see Stephen Frears kind of pre <laughs> the mode he's he's since adopted. Let's say. And you can, you can sort of feel in a good way the, the, the made-for-TV quality of it because it's not really concerned with story <laughs> or, um, you know, a certain scope. It just really lives in these characters' world and in a kind of gritty and very emotionally honest way that I, I really appreciated.
2: Yeah, Hanif Qureshi wrote the script, and it, it's such an interesting character study. No one is that good no one is fully bad like mm-hmm. it's it's a really interesting thing and i think that you know when it comes to the the gay romance at the center of it like I really appreciate that this story is not about these two young men being like, oh my God, am I? Is he? Like, it's, they just go, I mean, he just grabs his face and kisses him. I think they had
1: been involved before is what we're supposed to assume, right? right? Like they're reuniting and like they weren't just friends before.
2: Right. This is like the coming out or not, and it's not coming out, but the sort of realization of self, that's happened in the movie's past. Mm -hmm. And so instead we just get this, um, I loved having that sort of those movies are important too, but like having those obstacles removed yeah. so we could just kind of mm-hmm. sit with these two young, you know, they're, they're adults. I mean, they're young adults, but they're adults. Um, as they sort of, I don't know, have this semi-secretive affair, but they're not that careful about it. And I really appreciated, especially something that's nearly 40 years old, like that it, it wasn't coy or guarded at all. And I, I think that, that that's revolutionary to me. Obviously, there were movies you know, previous Boys in the Band or, you know, other, other things. But I don't know, This it, it felt so much more open and lively and fresh than i thought a movie from the mid 80s could at this point
1: yeah i mean it takes as a given that they're going to keep their relationship a secret like I, th- yes. I think like homophobia exists in this movie but it's not the topic the topic is thatcher and immigration and going to college and you know expectations of girls and families like, there's so much else to deal with and it's so nice to see that relationship at the base level and spin off into all these other bigger ideas
4: yeah. And it always plays on that level. You never expect that to become the conflict of the movie, like especially with what Johnny's going through and the sort of main issues he's facing in the film. It's just not really related to that, and that the movie makes that agreement with the audience pretty much from the beginning um, through to that amazing final shot, which, I mean, I don't know if we want to spoil it, but it's just so – it's a very joyous and sweet and – um very true to the movie's title, too.
1: <laughs> See, I think I was bracing for bad things to happen just because it's the 80s and you know, there's a bunch of dangerous street punks. I think mean, there's fights. Like, it's not – you know, it's not a conflict-free movie. But I think if I had, like, accepted from the beginning that, like, this is a movie in which, like, love can thrive, to put it really simplistically, I would have been less tense. And now I yeah. want to watch it all again knowing – This like, may be
4: my rewatch brain, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's maybe a spoiler, but I think it's worth knowing. Like, that's part of why it holds up so well, I think, too. This is like, not like a social consequences movie. This is, like, people – all living in the same community, kind of learning to live together, really. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, it also, I mean, it launched Stephen Frears and Dana Day-Lewis, but also it was produced by Working Title and it was mm-hmm. one of their first movies and they go on to be like one of the top British uh, film production companies. They did Darkest Hour and Danish Girl and uh, Stephen Queen's next movie, Blitz. So it was a also a start for them sort of behind the scenes as well. So it, it launched a lot, this movie.
2: I think it's also nice that the older people in Omar's life, his uncle and his father, are given really fair consideration. Um, you know, you have Saeed Jafri as his Uncle Nasser, who's this kind of very Western, modernized guy who's, you know, just pure capitalist, you know. Um, and then Roshan Seth, who people might remember from Temple of Doom, mm-hmm. um, as a faded leftist father who has become disillusioned with everything. And I think that the, those two men having this dialogue— about what Britain means to them. And, it, you know, it's only a couple of scenes, but, like, I think that adds such valuable texture to a movie that is, yeah, a gay romantic movie, but also is really just a survey of a community in some ways. Um, and, mm-hmm. look, I think women in that community maybe don't get as much consideration as the men do. But other than that, I think its, it's scope is so interesting. And I, I feel, I mean, this sounds like corny in a way, but I feel like I kind of learned a lot in some ways about a time and place in the U.K. Um, to make a wild pivot, though, was it implied that Johnny was maybe also had a thing with one of the the, the lead hooligan?
1: Yeah, I wondered that, too, because <laughs> yeah. in that big fight scene at the end, it seems very personal, the fight that it's, they're having.
2: Oh, maybe he's just jealous because yeah. he knows what Johnny's doing with Omar. Yeah. And it's not so much about I mean, it is about the xenophobia and everything, the racism, but maybe it's also personal. Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot
4: unspoken in the movie, yeah. generally. And and like you said, the, the implication that this is a relationship that already existed um, with the two leads, uh, it, the movie just allows that to exist and allows you to sort of feel your way through it. And then there are a lot of moments like that throughout, where you feel like you're bearing witness to something, and, and you're part of something larger, and there's a history to these characters and to, to these dynamics that they don't need to spell everything out. And that's something I, I really appreciated about the movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of unsaid, the uh, Rita Wolfe as uh, Tanya, the cousin who I think Omar is supposed to, like, they want him to marry her. Like, it's unclear how much either of them is interested in that. And she kind of watches Omar and Johnny together, and you kind of see her figuring it out. And then nothing really happens with that. And then she literally vanishes into thin air at the end of the movie. <laughs> like, she just escapes. It's really kind of magical. And her, like, that, that actress um, is really wonderful throughout the whole thing. Yeah, I think she, she kind of keeps that booing lightness as well.
2: She's so suave and just cool. Yeah. And you root for her and you kind of are like, well, there could be another movie that's about her mm-hmm. side of things and where she goes when she magically catches a speeding train <laughs> and disappears <laughs> in front of her father's eyes. But, yeah, I think that she does represent a certain light energy, a coolness that, you know, Rebecca you mean, or David, or one of you were mentioned, you know, kind of later Freer's. But this is so in line with like Grifters, which was just a yep. few years after this, where it's moody and dark, but also has that sort of youthful spark, you know, to it. And I think, you know, obviously I see why his career really took off around this time because it's like he's a unique voice, mm-hmm. you know, that has maybe been dulled some in sort of more cozy prestige. But then again, he's got this Kate Winslet dark political satire coming out on HBO in the fall. So Oh,
1: I didn't know he was involved in that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's him. That's In TV, he's kind of kept his his edge. I mean, right. even
4: a very English scandal had a really you know spiky tone, and I uh, thought came together well. He must have made Dangerous Liaisons pretty much right after this,
2: right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, he had a real prodigious mid eighties, late eighties, early nineties, um, and I see why this is sort of viewed as like the foundation of that, mm-hmm. um, even though he'd made films prior. I'm looking at
4: the uh original screenplay category <laughs> from this year which was at the movie's loan nomination and it's 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 a weird one because yeah. you have two Oliver Stone screenplays Platoon and Salvador you have Crocodile Dundee
1: yes obviously and then
4: Woody Allen I assume walks away with it for <laughs> and her sisters.
1: Yeah, I mean that seems to be the same vibe with Michael Caine, uh, who won the supporting actor Oscar. You know, Daniel Day Lewis wasn't nominated. I think he won the National Board of Review supporting actor award, so like he did have Oscar buzz at that point. Um, but it's because well, like- Room
4: with a View also came out this year. Oh, so this was his big breakout year.
1: Man. People must have just been like falling over themselves in his forest.
2: Again, I would be dead.
1: I, know. <laughs> I remember the women who worked in my dad's office had a um, poster of The Last Men of the Mohicans up in like the break room and like they just like adored him. And I never got it from that, but like now I feel like I understand. Um, can I talk a little bit about the 86 Oscars? I, w- I went back to my Inside mm. Oscar book to get yeah. some. There wasn't really much in that about My Beautiful Laundrette because it was nominated and didn't win. Um, but there is a clip. From the announcement, this is the year that um, Paul Newman wins Best Actor for The Color of Money. He was not there in person because I think he basically was like, I've been there seven times and lost. Maybe if I don't show up, I'll win. Um, And Betty Davis is there to present Best Actor. She had had a stroke three years earlier. So this is the first time she'd appeared in person. This whole clip is on YouTube. If you look up Betty Davis and Robert Wise, you can find it because Robert Wise comes up on stage to accept the Oscar on behalf of Paul Newman. But at that point, she had already screwed up the announcement of Best Actor. Like she'd said Bob Hoskins, but not the movie title. And then when she said the movie title, it was over a clip of someone else's performance. And so the, the director cut her mic. And so then when Robert Wise shows up, she just interrupts him as he starts giving a speech being like, no, I need to talk about you. Sounding music. You've had such a great career. And he's like, okay, yes, but I need to read Paul Newman's words. So then they cut the mic for both of them. And so he never gets to finish Paul Newman's speech. <laughs> so then... After the director of the show had at some point been like, you know, she went off script, so we cut her mic. She was so mad about it that she held a press conference days after the Oscars wearing the same dress with her two Oscars there present <sighs> to uh-huh. say the quote, it was not my fault that they were overtime. We had rehearsed the entire show the night before, and I'm tired of taking the blame from the press. You need to watch this. Everyone needs to watch this. Good
2: for you, Betty. Well, we, just, we just need more people like that in the industry. Yeah, we do. You know, let's, let's, not, let's not Twitter shame people for being eccentric, demanding <laughs> actors anymore. Like, come on. That's great.
1: It made me think of Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. And like, if you watch this clip, like they really have nothing on Betty Davis and her like wild card energy at those Oscars.
2: Yeah, I mean, she yeah. helped invent it, I think. Yes, she That's did. Amazing. <laughs> so this movie premiered at TIFF in 85, right? But it mm-hmm. didn't come out in the U.S. till 86. So it was counted as an 86 movie, obviously, for the Oscars. It wasn't yeah. like a qualifying release thing?
1: I don't think so. Okay.
2: I guess maybe that was before that practice really swung into motion. I don't know. but um, And it was it was a financial success, right? Like, sort of, for an indie little... Like it made a couple million dollars. it
3: made $2.4 yeah. million. So, yeah, you okay. know, it was initially supposed to be a TV movie, so it wouldn't have made any oh, right. money. <laughs> so. it, made, it made money at all. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how close, if at all, Daniel Day-Lewis was in, in like the conversation to a supporting nom at the time. You know, it, yeah. I, I wish we had those kinds of details because I am curious if he was having such an incredible year. Saeed Jaffrey got a BAFTA nomination, actually, for the role.
4: This was back before the BAFTAs sort of closely mirrored the Oscars, but um, still notable.
1: I mean, we talked about last week about Kiss of the Spider-Woman, how it made $17 million in 1985 money, which was a ton at the box office. It was like this big indie hit. I think Mamie de Falandre was a little bit lower key than that for probably various reasons. But um, clearly it had an impact. And, uh, you know, we talk about this every year. I think you're like, oh, Florence Pugh, she was amazing in Midsommar. I wish she could get nominated. And then the next year she gets Little Women. You know, like the building blocks of Mm -hmm. Oscar dominance can kind of start from something like that. And it seems like this. Very much
2: did. Yeah, I mean, he won just a few years later, right? Mm-hmm. His first, yep. yeah. Um, there was going to be a TV series with Kamel uh, I saw uh, of this an adaptation like re- a few years ago, but I don't think it never oh, came really? to be. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if this is one I want to see remade in any form. You know, I think it's so special as a very document of its time and place and talent. And I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think the format where you have like. Gay romance in the center of like culture clash, like topical, like there's a way to do that, but I think you just gotta make it a whole different story.
2: Yeah, and you probably, I would say, in that instance, given what how sexy the original is with uh, at least one straight actor, I think for the a modern, you'd really need to cascade actors. Yeah. That would be my preference, anyway.
1: I said I was going to watch My Left Foot, and I haven't yet. I've never seen it. But, like, like after watching this, I was like, I need to watch everything Daniel Day-Lewis has ever made. Like, I think you said at the beginning, Richard, it made me feel like I'd underestimated him, which is not something I would have expected.
2: It's just always fun to be like, oh, these people have origins. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I watched Manhunter with my sister a couple weeks ago. And it was like, oh, yeah, William Peterson is not just the dad from the Reese Witherspoon film Fear or, (laughs) you know, CSI. He, like, was a movie star, like, you know. And I think seeing Day-Lewis, like, I think I was probably first conscious of him when Last of the Mohicans came out. And then, like, obviously, Mm -hmm. as I got older, was like, oh, right, he's a lauded actor. But, yeah, seeing him in in his relative youth, I think he was, like, 27 when they filmed it, Mm -hmm. Um is astounding, you know, and you're like, yeah, I guess, yeah, I think it made me want to be more of a completist about his work like you, Katie. Yeah.
4: I rewatched Age of Innocence recently and kind of getting that and this back to back. I was just honestly taken out by his vocal range. I mean, the the, the commitment to <laughs> accent and, and the way that rounds out his characters, both of whom I think are pretty, like, hot, <laughs> is really, really remarkable. So, yeah, I think those early roles he he's already unveiling something really extraordinary
2: I'm glad we've decided that Daniel Day-Lewis is a good actor <laughs> I think we should tell the world you heard it here first
1: <laughs> I think about watching Age of Innocence before the next Grisezzi maybe that's our next assignment just got to um,
4: it's worth it yeah that's one of my favorites
1: well, My Beautiful Laundra is on Max. Um, it's easy to watch. It is so worth watching. And I think if you, like me, didn't necessarily know it was going to be relatively cheerful while still having big ideas, um, don't be afraid of it. It's great. Everyone should watch it.
2: Yeah, don't sleep on it.
1: That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VFAwardsInsider, and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David.
4: David Canfield, 97.
1: And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And just to repeat, go to VF.com and read the Reunited series. This week, it is thriving and great. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best possible outcome from next year's election goes to Richard Lawson.
2: The theater kids are fully in control.
0: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.